Good evening. Everyone. So last night, Noah mentioned the name Mara. Raise your hands if you don't know who Mara is. A few don't know who Mara. Ten years ago, everybody didn't know who Mara was. So um, in the Buddhist, whatever we want to call it, the scriptures, the mythology, however we would name it, Mara is the trickster, the, the creep, the evil one who's, who loves to interfere with and prevent awakening, the awakening. So on the night of the Buddha's enlightenment, as the story goes, Mara definitely did not want the Buddha to get enlightened. That was a major enlightenment. He really wanted to interfere with that. So Mara comes with all different kind of temptations for the Buddha, sex and power and money and, and um, fears and, and saying things to the Buddha like, who do you think you are, you know, to think you could get enlightened? And, you know, everything, self-doubt, and everything that he could do to try to stop the Buddha. And the image that's given is that legions of the armies of Mara shot thousands of arrows at the Buddha as he sat under the Bodhi tree, the arrows of all this difficulty. And the Buddha sat undisturbed. And the arrows turned into flower petals and fell at his feet. I love that image. So how did he do that? How can we do that when we're sitting here and there's so much Mara and so much difficulty? How can it transform into peace, wisdom, openness? So that's what we've been you know, hearing about. We've definitely been hearing um, in the groups that, and the individuals' meetings that there's plenty of uh, difficulty, and everyone now has been in a group, so you heard also that you're not the only person who is finding that at times it can be hard to sit here and do intensive practice. So how do we work with that? There's a, a, an old Zen joke about difficulty in practice. The energetic young student goes to the monastery to enter the monastery and the Zen priest says, okay, come on in. Every 10 years you'll get an interview and in the interview you get to say two words. So the student's very serious and really practices hard for the first 10 years and goes through some ups and downs. As you might imagine, you've been here two days. and. Um, Finally, it's time for the first interview, and the student goes in, bows, and says his thing, hard bed. And the, and the master bows, and he's gone. And he goes back to his practice for 10 more years. 20 years have passed now. He goes in to the master, and he says two words, bad food. The master bows, he goes back 10 more years. Now we're 30 years into this retreat, into this. He goes in, bows, I quit. <laughs> and, and the Zen master says, well, it doesn't surprise me. You've done nothing but complain since you got here. <laughs> so, 
is a little Buddhist joke about suffering and practice sort of makes our reality a little bit um, relative. So when I first started attending this type of retreat, uh, mindfulness retreats, I was in my early 20s, it was the 70s, and in those days they only had 10-day retreats to start with, so there I went. And for the first, I don't know, three or four of these, the first day or two, I, I didn't sort of not like it, I hated it, intensely hated it. And I wondered, what was I doing here? And I was, if I wasn't in all kinds of physical pain and agony, I was judging the teachers and myself, and then I would, I would judge myself for judging them and for not getting it, and just, it was just totally uncomfortable, and I hated it. And I would sit there and think, you know, in this state, thinking, how could this possibly lead to any kind of freedom or enlightenment? I mean, how could it? And there was another thing that was different than here. We, um, in those, at the, those times, there wasn't already sort of a Buddhist meditation culture. There were just these 10-day retreats happening out in the desert. And um, there weren't group interviews. And, and most of us were all brand new to it because it, was, it, had just occur, it had just arrived on our shores. So um, I looked around in this room where there was... Um, couple hundred people and everybody is sitting at every sitting as they are here perfectly. So I thought that I was the only one going through this and they didn't have group interviews. So you went into these individual interviews, you know, with whoever it was. And it wasn't until much later that I heard that other people were going through this, you know, like it was years later. So I would, it would all add to my judging myself and having a horrible time. And then every one of the retreats, the same thing happened. Somewhere around two days, three days into it, <clears throat> I kept listening to these teachings that were coming that kept basically saying the same thing, as Vinny said the other night. And something was sort of dawn on me, like, oh yeah, mindfulness. Oh, I'm supposed to be just experiencing this experience as it is. Oh yeah, letting go. Oh, yeah, opening. It was sort of like dawn on me, and this whole shift would happen. And this happened retreat after retreat. Oh, yeah, mindfulness. And then um, <clears throat> this shift for me at that time, and maybe still, such a radical shift from resisting my life and my experience to opening was like going from hell to heaven for me. It was just like, and so by the end of these 10-day retreats, I would be planning, you know, how I can go to three months here and how I can convert all my friends because by the end of these retreats, I was totally into it. But then I'd go back to the next one some months later and start all over again for a while. <clears throat> so difficulties, difficulties, especially at the first part of a retreat, um, are part of spiritual practice, as everybody keeps saying. So we're not guilty because we're having difficulties. We're not failing. We're joining all the people throughout the ages that have ever done any kind of con genuine, genuine contemplative practice where they're going deeply in and being with themselves. 
they're going to face whatever form of the demons they're going to be faced somehow. And, and it's not a matter of if we will run into these things, it's how will we deal with it. So how we face the difficulties will determine whether they are what's called a hindrance or a gateway. So the Buddha, who was a list maker, you may know that, he made lists for everything, listed five main categories. I know a lot of you have heard these categories before. Did you mention today? Okay. Um, five main categories of difficulties that, some, that, that every difficulty can somehow fit into one of these five. And he said that these, in these five areas... These are not like the five mortal sins or you know, the, the horrible things that you shouldn't experience. They are five areas where you should turn up your attention, turn up mindfulness. Because if you don't, they can become obstacle. If you turn up, they can become gateway. So the five, as, as many of you know, the first one is low energy or sleepiness. We talked a lot about that recently, uh, this morning and yesterday. The second one is its opposite, which is restlessness. The next one is grasping, wanting. The next one is its opposite, aversion, pushing away. And the fifth one is um, doubt. So I'm going to read a, um, a poem by Rumi that has just become such a classic that you have probably heard this, but it's, it's so um, appropriate that it's good to hear good poems over and over. So it's called The Guest House. We should all say it in unison. This being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness, some momentary awareness comes and is as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought the malice, the shame. <clears throat> Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. So that's what we call a radical approach. Welcome and invite them in. Meet them at the door laughing. So really, it's what the Buddha is saying in mindfulness. We're not going to try to push them away. We're going to learn a way to welcome, invite them in, which of course is mindfulness. So um, mindfulness, which we keep talking about, another way of talking about it is to say it's a meeting, a moment of experience with precision and gentleness. Or another language would be clarity 
and kindness simultaneously. So for instance, let's say you're having a moment or a long moment of restlessness, which is, you know, the agitated, too much energy, can't stand it another minute, it's going to come out of my skin, ring the bell, you know, restlessness. And I know there's no one here who's felt that ever, <laughs> but some of us have experienced it. So you're in the middle of that and you're going to die. You're going to just die of restlessness. Right in the middle of that, precision can just know, oh, this is restlessness. That's the precision. It's simply knowing that's what this is. It's restlessness. The simultaneous gentleness is sort of like Oh, restless. It's just that way. It's not judging. It's just kind of, oh, this is restless. Okay. Just this moment. Just, ah. A moment of restlessness met with kindness and precision. Sometimes um, mindfulness, especially with the hindrances or these five areas, is like having a good friend who is a good listener. And everyone has had, hopefully, that experience sometime in life where there's something going on and someone is just there and they really are present and they listen. They don't have to fix it and they don't judge you. And somehow in sharing it, something shifts because they so received it. Mindfulness is like that good friend. So, um, if any of these five energies are lurking around, the number one, first, most important thing is tune up, turn up mindful attention to it. But as I imagine everyone in here has probably already experienced even today, there are times when one or even sometimes simultaneously more than one of these difficult energies is so strong and you've really tried to be mindful, you've really tried to be precise, you've really tried to be gentle, you've tried it all and you're just getting flattened. You can't, the mindfulness just won't, um, it's flattening the mindfulness. A difficulty like a tiredness or a restlessness or a grasping, something. When you can't keep the thread of the mindfulness, and you've tried many times. Then the Buddha offered what he called antidotes, ways to help bring balance. You don't, so you don't go directly. If, you know, you're sitting here, you're breathing, you have a moment of wanting, you go direct. You don't go directly to antidote. You go directly to mindfulness. And then eventually, if you need it, there are um, some things you can try to do to help bring balance. So... Like I said, we talked pretty much in here about sleepiness um, yesterday and today. It's obvious bringing what would help raise energy is the answer to that, the antidote. The restlessness, how to help with that, the classic antidote for too much energy is to bring calm and stability through stronger concentration. So that can happen um, by honing in closer to the breath. Maybe 
well, I've been sort of aware of the breath, or kind of the breath in the body. Now you can hone in maybe the beginning, the middle, the end of the breath. Or some people uh, count if they really are trying to collect some concentration. You can even count um, breaths, maybe try to count to three or four breaths. But if you have a thought, you go back to one. That's very concentrating. It, it can work a little bit. Another thing that is very useful in um, restlessness is if you think of it as all this energy being trying to fit into this little body that's this big and it's just not fitting and so sometimes it feels like there's bugs on your skin or your skin is crawling. Um, So you can sit here and you can imagine that your body just expands and becomes vast, bigger than this hall even. As big as all hundreds of acres of spirit rock. So there's this huge space. And the energy has all the room it wants. And that space can sometimes help ride with that restless energy. So the next one, in the way I'm going to present it tonight, because I want to put more attention on one at the end, so doubt, um, doubt is really something to know about. It's, it's because it can actually freeze, it can paralyze your practice. Because you're, if you're sitting there doubting yourself, the practice, I'm not sure this is right for me, I'm not sure these are the right teachers, I'm not sure I could ever do this, I'm, I, I, can't really, I can't do this, they're wrong, I'm wrong, the place is, you know. If you're doing that in round and round, you, you can't, be mindful of it because you're spinning in thoughts about it and worrying and staying disconnected. So it's a powerful thing to be able to know just that precision. This is doubt. To be able to name it. There's, it's really important that we question things. And the Buddha was the first person to say, you know, inquire into everything. Turn it over. Find out for yourself. It's not like just, you know, believe in all this, don't doubt it. Um, but once I was in really a huge doubt fit. I mean, it had lasted about two days, and I was just stalled in this doubt. And I finally realized, um, you know, I'm here. All the energies in the universe conspired, and here I am. I'm at this retreat. There's still several days left of this retreat. So I'm here, so I will, I decided to surrender even into this practice that I thought was so wrong for me and so wrong for all these reasons I was doubting it. So I'll surrender until Saturday at 11.30 in the morning. And then I give myself permission to doubt and question, maybe never come back again in this whole thing. And of course, by Saturday I was on to, I was out of doubt. A more, a much more classical um, the Buddha antidote to doubt is to inspire faith. And we're not talking blind faith. Um, Sometimes they say, um, reconnect to your original motivation that brought you to the retreat. Actually sit there, instead of doubting, reconnect with it in your heart, in your body. Remember, reconnect with your original motivation that brought you on a spiritual journey. What is it? What's calling? Reconnect with 
the most inspiring, you can sit there if you're just lost in doubt, what is the most inspiring spiritual teaching I've ever heard? And let yourself soak in it a little bit. Reconnect, get inspired with something that matters, that means something to you. And of course you can do that at home with all kinds of, you know, the internet now is just flowing with dharma, as well as books, libraries, everything. For me, um, something that has helped me re-inspire many times is the remembrance of the Bodhisattva vow. I vow, the Bodhisattva says, I vow to practice, to awaken, to use everything that happens for my own awakening and for the benefit of all beings. So sometimes when I have needed to inspire something that's inspiring to me, motivation, it has to be bigger than my little story. It's just not big enough to make me want to sit here, but if I think it's serving something bigger, and I sense that it is, that sometimes inspires inspiration. So the next one on the list, aversion. Uh, such a favorite uh, one of the categories. There's so many things that come fall into this category. All kinds of ill will, all this stuff of sitting there and being irritated and if that loud breather behind me would just go, leave the retreat, then it would then it would be good, you know, then it would be okay. If only that irritating uh, you know would would be different, that aversion. So there's all the irritability and the anger. Then also, interestingly enough, the Buddha lists fear under aversion. I personally think fear should have its own category, but who am I to argue with the Buddha? So fear. Um, then there is the really big one that is mentioned, been mentioned here a lot at this retreat because it's pretty much of an epidemic in our American culture. There's people here at our retreat that are not from America culture. Um, maybe not an epidemic where you live, but we're here. Judgment, particularly self-judgment, but also judgment of others, but is, is like an epidemic. And it's, I imagine almost everyone in this room knows, um, really a source of suffering. We're the richest nation in the world with all our various privileges, depending on our circumstances. We don't have a war, we have food, etc. But we deeply hurt ourselves with our mind by judging, by beating ourselves up. It's an amazing kind of situation we're in. And there's people from other cultures that just hear about this and they just turn their head and go, What? Americans hate themselves? Wow. Interesting. There's so much not good enough. Come to retreat and there's, you know, you can just, like one woman said to me, you know, she said, I actually thought I accepted myself till I came to this retreat. <laughs> I didn't even realize that I actually hated myself. But there's this huge thing that we can do. I'm just not good enough. I'm not good enough to awaken. I'm not, I'm not good enough to, 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 to awaken. They maybe can, but not me. I'm not good enough to be loved. I'm not good enough. You know, this whatever the I'm not good enough thing is. And this self-judgment, with this form of aversion, can be uh, subtle or extremely loud, as I think we all know. 
And in daily life, because we're busy and we're all going around at our incredible rate and doing all the things we're doing, um, it, can, it can be like a background music that you're not even hearing. There's just a feeling inside, like, I just really need to, I just need to work harder and do more and, and, and you know, get that done faster and have more. You know, there's just some kind of American push happening. But there's not the same experience where you come on retreat and you might realize, wow, that whole big push to do more, be more, is so coming out of I'm not enough how I am. We come on retreat and sometimes the background music becomes the foreground because there is nothing distracting. And we're sitting here with them, my God, I'm soaking in this self-judgment. It's so painful. And it's amazing um, experience that most everyone, I, I've really literally worked with thousands of people at this point, and most people I worked with have experienced it, their Americans have experienced it to some degree, and it never works. And everybody who has experienced it realizes, I've done this to myself, I've beat myself up, I've put myself down, I've made myself not enough, I've compared myself, and it has never once ever made anyone feel even a little better. But we keep doing it. Really interesting. So no matter how many times you've heard what I'm about to say, don't just um, fog this out because you're okay, love yourself, yeah, love yourself. Okay, (laughs) California cliche, okay, okay. So I'm going to ask you, because you're on retreat, to consider um, opening and take this in deeper, deeper because it's really true what I'm about to say. The, um, any cruel story that happens inside of you that you are not lovable as you are is not true. It's not the truth. It's a story made of conditions who, who each of you are is is a miracle, is a treasure. You are love. All that stuff, I'm unworthy, which I know like I have a double PhD in unworthiness, um, which is why I talk about it so much, because it's so profound to un- unwind out of that. Um, it's not the truth. We have intrinsic worth. We are intrinsic worth. Everyone here. It's shining inside every single one of us, as we are. So the antidote that Buddha talked about for aversion, and this, all these forms of aversion, including this self-judgment, of course, which I believe you already said, um, love. Big surprise. Love. A very, very famous teaching, the Buddha once said, this is a universal truth, and this applies to countries, nations, communities, families, and it applies to individuals. He said, hatred will never end through hatred, but by love alone will it end. Hating ourselves will never fix us. It will never end the self-hatred. Love alone will be what transforms that. 
And as we do that work on ourselves, we become part of the solution this planet needs this on the biggest scales the medium scales we need to get this the violence and the hatred will never end it so we become the love we learn to do it to ourselves we learn to do it for each other for the benefit of all beings and the beautiful meditation that vinnie led today loving kindness is a gift um, that's been given to us. I want to so deeply recommend that every single person does it every single day of your life. Do it, take it like medicine until it's so flowing in you as you, and and it starts to come out of you. The idea that, that this will never work for me, that's what I thought in the 70s when I was like a solid ball of self hate and judgment. And uh, a great being, Stephen, said to me, Deborah, you need to do this meditation every day. And I said, you mean in addition to the, med- the Vipassana, you know, 45 minutes and plus? Yes. <laughs> and I am so grateful to him for that. I am so grateful that he sort of stood for that. And I um, did that every day for so long, and it really, really was... Uh, life transforming because I believed it couldn't be possible that I could feel it. I I really thought other people could and to realize I'm not separate from that great love is just an extraordinary thing and I've worked with so many many people and I've seen this practice works so I want you all to take that medicine. So we go on to the next of the five on the list, I don't like to call them the five hindrances or the five potentials. Um, I'm doing it last because I'll spend a little more time on it. It's this wanting and desire that Noah talked a lot about and beautifully about last night. You know, all the different kinds of wantings, the opposite of the version, you know, instead of if only the breather behind me would go away, it's more like if only, you know, the wanting part, if only that person would, whatever, um, fill in the blank. That would be wanting. Are you following me there? Anyway, just moving on, um, I'll quote the Buddha for a minute. The Buddha said, What is the origin of of suffering, craving, and desire? What is the cessation of suffering? It is the remainderless fading, the letting go of that same craving and desire. That's the second noble truth. So we hear these teachings, and there's something that might resonate as, well, I just know that's true, but wow, it's hard to hear it. It's big, it's huge, because, as Noah was saying, we're filled with it. Our life is run by all this craving, so how am I ever going to be free? So another little joke, just to play with this a minute. The, The guy's dying on his deathbed and the caregiver's leaning over, and it's the last words of the dying person that really are going to be important and meaningful about their life, what mattered in their life. And the caregiver's listening, and the dying person said, if only I would have collected more junk. <laughs> you know, it's just so absurd. It's so stupid. It's, it's just, you know, but it's all of us. You know, because at the end of life, something's something supposed to become so 
apparent, so obvious what was important. But all of our lives are run by so much wanting and accumulating and desiring and grasping and consuming. It's just unbelievable when we start paying attention to it. So it's good to kind of laugh about it a little bit and see that it's the soup we're swimming in. But then we see, we look, because we start hearing these teachings, is all desire the source of suffering? Did you have a desire to come to the retreat, to be free? Do you have a desire for your kids to be healthy and have a good neighborhood, a safe place to grow up? Do you have desire to help the environment? Are those desires creating suffering? This is important. This is important inquiry to learn about um, desire because it's such a big centerpiece of the Dharma and freedom. So we come on retreat and we have the opportunity to study desire because it arises, doesn't it? Wanting something. So we get to sit here and see it. We don't have to get totally lost in it. But we can begin to wonder, is this a, a kind of suffering? Is this a kind of desire that would lead to suffering? Is it leading to suffering? Whatever is the thing you're desiring. I'm desiring a chocolate ice cream or whatever it is. Um, is that really what I'm desiring? Is that really what all these thoughts, desire, desire, want? Is that really what that is? If I fulfill that desire, what happens? Is there some great relief? How long does that last? What, what is desire? What happens if I don't act on desire and I sit and, and observe it? A lot of times in this time, there's this. We're we're really wired up now to check our messages, to 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 check. You know, to just check. I just want to see. You know what I mean? And uh, or just quickly shoot a little text. You just you know, this is like an urge, a desire. I just want to. So on retreat, what's it like to just notice the urge? Where's the urge? What's it feel like? And what if I just don't act on it? I just don't pick up the little phone. I just don't. And I just, what if I just study the experience of wanting to? What might I learn? What's the effect of looking? So, Jack Cornfield, our beloved, who I recommend to everyone if you haven't come across him and his books, from one of his books, says On retreat, various desires will come and go. As we let them come and go, our identity expands. We move from the small body of fear and wanting to something greater. There is a world of beauty. If we rest in that, we see that what we most want, what we most desire, is the end of desire. Mm -hmm. I love that there is a world of beauty. 
if we rest in that, we see that what we most desire is the end of desire. This doesn't mean that we should be detached. Between the small self and the greater self, there is connection and interdependence. To pay attention to desire moves us from the small identity to the greater. We realize we can live with passion and love for ourself and for the whole world. This redeems us. So the most troubling kind of desire is called tanha in the Pali. It's translated as blinding thirst. So this is the form of desire that can cause us to break our precepts. It can, cause, it can actually distort our perception, tell stories. You all know what I'm talking about. Um, and allow us to harm ourselves and others. It can, it, everybody here could tell lots of stories, embarrassing stories about their version of blinding thirst and how we got caught in it. Um, it can be on retreat, intense, loud, like the other thing, or it can be very subtle and seductive. So you're sitting, meditating. Wow, that was really a good sitting. I would like another sitting like that. So afternoon, and I'm kind of tired, but I think if I had a double cappuccino, it would really serve the Dharma. <laughs> because that was really a good sitting when I had that caffeine. So I, I don't think anyone would even notice or mind if I just slipped away to Fairfax. <laughs> Fairfax cappuccino and this whole thing. At some point in the middle of this whole thing, you could get in your car and drive all the way to Fairfax and try to have a cappuccino and see if that really was what you were truly desiring. Or at any point in the middle of this long thing, which could go on for hours, and I know you know what I'm talking about. Um, Precision just goes, oh, that's wanting. Oh, what it feels like to want right now is this. You can explore that desire instead of um, going with it. The, the antidote for this is interesting. The, the Buddha taught, don't tune me out for just a second because I used to tune this out so much. He recommended, <laughs> right, when you hear it, you'll understand what I mean. The word moderation, tune out, okay. It's like an anti-American thought, you know, moderation. <laughs> what is moderation? Um, I mean, in America is just about more is better, you know, so this whole idea of moderation. When I first heard this, this teaching, and again, I was, it was, I was in my 20s, um, I just didn't take it seriously at all because it sounded like something that was antiquated. I thought my grandmother might say something like that, you know, moderation, dear, in that, you know, and I just, it didn't, I just tuned it out. So until I was on a retreat and I was suffering, I was suffering and they gave this thing, I thought, I've got to try something because I'm suffering, so I'll tell you an embarrassing story. Um, So I was on this retreat and I became ridiculously obsessed with an attraction to a total stranger who I knew nothing about. 
<laughs> but whom I, you know, was more and more convinced was the one, you know. And uh, at first, the first day or two of it, it was, it was just no big deal. It was just kind of fun. And, but it's, it stopped being fun because it started to fill up so much space. And um, this is such a common thing at Vipassana retreats. I see some of you chuckling. Uh, that the teachers actually gave it a name. They called it a VR, Vipassana romance. <laughs> this romance that you have without ever talking to someone or looking at them at all. You, you project this whole fantastic story, you know, based on their shoes were beside my <laughs> shoes. I love the way they walk, you know. So, or here it might be like, oh, that is, I just know that's such a sensitive, powerful person. I love their tattoos. <laughs> I think they'll really make a good parent, you know, the whole story. <laughs> so, that's a Vipassana romance. Tanha. So, um, like I said, it, it was all sort of fun and everything until it was filling up all this space. And I was like scheming on, on, on where I could do my walking meditation so I might run into him, maybe accidentally bump into him. You know, it was just like, ugh. And I, and I realized I had, it was a 20-day retreat, so it had taken me, I had to clear a lot of space, I had to get time off, I had to save up a lot of money, I really wanted to practice, and here I was spending this precious time <laughs> fantasizing about this stranger. Um, and I realized this is suffering. It was a form of suffering. I couldn't, I couldn't, at a certain point, I couldn't get back into the mindfulness of what am I doing? And this is way out. So I thought, okay, I'm desperate. I'll try this moderation thing. There's nothing else to do. I'm, I'm, I'm here at this retreat. Which in this case means not indulging in the fantasy. So uh, I just started, literally what I did was I just stopped looking. That was my big moderation, my big not indulgent. As I just, instead of looking where his shoes were, or did he walk in yet, or I know where he's sitting, you know, this whole thing, where's this little room, all these things, I just stopped looking. And, um, and then I would sit with the urge to look and study it. This is what it feels like. And it took about a few seconds. It was a very boring study, and then I could come back. And within about a day and a half, the whole thing vanished. And that was really weird. This like huge hurricane storm blew in. It seemed like to fill up all my space. And then I studied it a little bit, and it completely went away. It was nothing. It never existed. It was a play in my mind. <laughs> as soon as I stopped putting fuel into the fire, it was just... And I was like, whoa, I've learned a lot about my mind and about tanha and about moderation. And um, I was, I'm grateful for what I learned. I've applied it many, many times since then. Yeah, many times. So and the other classical antidote for... Um, this, I'm going to just say briefly, is for uh, aversion, I'm sorry, for desire, is the reflection on impermanence. There's a powerful, whatever it is you're lusting after, you reflect on the fact that that's impermanent, 
this is an instruction like any spiritual instruction that can be abused. You know, you can um, use it to detach, you know, oh, they're impermanent, you know, instead of actually what's really um, being pointed out to us by the Buddha is to try to realize, to keep looking for our source of happiness and security in that which can, is not going to be taken away from us. So that's what that reflection is about. I'm going to tell you one more story here before we run out of time. Another personal embarrassing story, why not? Um, but it was really, they, when you have a whole lot of these hindrances happening at one time, it's affectionately called a multiple hindrance attack. So I was having this multiple hindrance attack, which I'll tell you about. It was a number of years ago. I don't know, 14, something like that. And um, I was sitting at our sister center, Barry uh, IMS in Massachusetts, for a six-week retreat, doing the same thing you're doing, sitting and walking. And I had made a resolve at the beginning of the retreat that I was really going to practice being continuous, meaning when I got up and walked out, when I you know, was brushing my teeth, whatever I was doing, it was my intention as I started this to stay there and just to practice mindfulness and try to come back. So I actually did pretty well. We're talking relatively. It wasn't perfect, but it was pretty good for about four and a half weeks. And then one day after lunch, I, I had a little tiny room, and in the little tiny room was a little tiny altar with three things on it. So I, after four and a half weeks, I knew exactly what was on the little tiny altar. I walked in my room, and I thought, well, how weird. The little snapshot of my mom, which was on the altar, is gone. That's weird. Where could it go? Nobody's going to walk in and steal a picture of my mother. <laughs> so it must have fallen off. So I start looking, and I can't find it. So then I'm looking deeper, and then I, I rip apart everything in the room, totally, three times. The bed, I'm opening doors, I'm pulling the heater off the wall. You know, where, where could it go? It's a snap. There's, the room is a little room. It's got to be here. Trash can four times. You know, I, I, I tear the whole thing apart over and over, and I hear a bell ring. An hour has passed. There wasn't a single second of mindfulness. I didn't even remember about practice. And when I heard the bell, I went, oh my God. I've been here for four and a half weeks, and I just lost it <laughs> over a little snapshot. It was my favorite picture of my mom, and she had died seven months before, and it was in her red Christmas dress, and it just captured her essence, which is why it was on my altar. So um, I thought, oh, okay no problem, I'll come back and um, back to my being continuous here. It's time to go to the sitting. Couldn't find the picture, so I start walking down the hall really slow after four and a half weeks, you know, lifting, moving, placing. There's another thing, many of you have heard the phrase, yogi mind, and might have a little bit of it after two days of sitting, but imagine four and a half weeks, there's this sort of super sensitive, like mildly drugged, <laughs> or, you know, altered state. So you're everything, you know, sitting, moving, placing, lifting. Where is that picture? <laughs> I'm going to make it to the hall, lifting, moving. It's got to be somewhere, you know. It's impossible that it vanished. Lifting, moving, and then I stop and I went, oh shit. 
This morning, 5.30 in the morning was laundry day. My mother is in the laundry. Oh no. And I, the next moment of mindfulness that I was aware of, I had gone down to the cellar. I was digging through other people's dirty underwear, looking for the picture. At which point I went, this is suffering. This is really gross. Enough. Okay, I'm not going to dig through the laundry anymore. I'm going back to my room. Because at IMS, you can't go into the sitting late. So I go back to my room. And this time I was really resolved. This time, I'm going to practice with this. What else is there to do? So I sat down, and I knew this is tanha. This is wanting. I lost it so much. So I sat down, and I thought the thoughts were still there as I sat in my room, wanting to look, thinking I was composing the note that I would write. Did anyone see a picture? You know, okay, come back, Deborah. So finally, I had to take my attention to uh, the level body, what we did today, mindfulness of the body. The mind was too wild. So while I'm thinking all these thoughts, what's going on at the level of sensation? So as I did that, of course, big surprise, aching heart burning chest. Oh, yeah. Okay, I'm sitting, I'm being present. I know how to do this. Okay, I'm sitting. Oh, it's a big ache. Whoa, this is big grief. All right. And this, in a, it was a short period of about a year and a half. I had a number of loved ones die. So this was the picture, the impermanence, the loss of this picture. The, my mom, um, it was just totally bringing up all these deaths that I'd been with, particularly my mom's, but also my brother's and some other people I really love. So I'm sitting there burning, heartbreaking, grieving, you know, grieving again, being present with that. And um, it, it was moving around from this deep grief. It, be, it started to become a kind of loneliness. And I, sitting in my room and the yogi mind and the grief, I began to actually feel like this is, I'm in a swamp here. There's this, I'm somehow in a grief, in a pain, in a loneliness. And I became afraid of how much I hurt. I could feel the um, truth, everybody I love including me, but everyone I love, which seemed much more scary than me, is going to die, and I don't know when. And it just, it was, so I was dealing now with grief and fear, and in the middle of all this, I um, remembered about love and compassion, like, as medicine, as antidote to this fear. So just remembering that in this place, you know, yeah, love to this deep compassion to the suffering, to the daughter, to the sister, to the one who's grieving, great deep compassion to the human being. It's hard to lose people you love. It just hurts so bad. It's scary, too, sometimes. Compassion to that. And as I, as I sat with this compassion, it was softening and opening me. And what started happening was compassion 
this started happening more naturally as I felt how all of us are in this completely together. We are all looking for some place to stand. We're all looking for some solid ground. We're looking for some security. And, and it's all impermanent. And we're all afraid. And everyone has grief. And it's this feeling, this mass of compassion for how it is that we all, that we all sometimes deeply suffer. And the compassion um, just opened this incredible tenderness and it began expanding. The compassion just began expanding somewhat like the meditation that Vinnie did today. Um, expanding as space and it did what antidotes are meant to do. The compassion and the love allowed me to reestablish mindfulness. And I was able to then sit there. But what, what I was sitting in was a vast open space. And I sat there for a really long time. And it was filled with a, a warmth of compassion. But it was more deeply peace. And I sat and I felt a sense of freedom and it wasn't the freedom from having found the picture and it wasn't the freedom because now I'm not grieving because the grief would come and go it was the freedom from resisting the grief or identifying with it was just the freedom to let it all come and let it all go and be this space this compassionate aware space that was letting it all come and go. So it was a really extraordinary um, experience where um, the hindrance, the arrow, transformed into the flower petal. The thing that would have been the problem became the gateway, deep gateway, deep um, teacher for me. Yeah, so working with our difficulties can definitely be one of our great teachers. Um, and it's, it's hard, and it is really the, the training for the front line of human life. So it's good to practice it on retreat. So I think I will just complete by... Um, there's plenty more I could say, but I'll, I'll complete with a, a quote from a teacher, Ajahn Jimnian. Ajahn Jimnian is a Thai forest master who I sat with in Thailand some and here some. A real character, but a real uh, he's eccentric. <clears throat> he's also a pretty extraordinary guy. He just exudes um, joy and love, and he is uh, always teaching about the wisdom of letting go of freedom through letting go of grasping and aversion. And he's, t- he's always taking it with weird stories. So he'll say like, he'll say like, well, if the people come and offer me food, very good, you know, because monks can only say, very good, I like food. And he says, if they don't come, very good, I need a diet. <laughs> and, you know, he's always um, teaching in all these kind of wacky ways. So... Ajahn Jemnian, I'll just end by saying Ajahn Jemnian says, um, gradually, with practice, 
you move through this suffering world, but you are no longer caught in the suffering. You abide in a peaceful heart, and life becomes joyful. So let's just sit for a couple minutes. a nice walking in this summer evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.